Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the book of, book of Exodus, chapter 13. In a moment, we'll read the first 16 verses. And as you find your place in Exodus 13, hear these words from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. I pray those are expressions of our heart this morning. I pray that we are those who are thirsty and who are hungry, but yet have nothing in our hands to bring. And that God in His grace, His mercy, gives us what satisfies. Listen to Him diligently and he will give you what you need to eat. And so we eat from his word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're reminded of that every Sunday. We need God's word to live. So with those thoughts, would you stand with me as we read from Exodus chapter 13 this morning, the first 16 verses. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beasts, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, You shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be a sign to you as a sign, it shall be to you as a sign on your hand. And as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first All that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. 
Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I will sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Listen to these words that the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 7. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Humility does not come easy to humans. It does not come naturally. We are not born with a bent towards being humble people. In fact, it's just the opposite. We are born with the propensity to be prideful. When we are born, we are born in Adam. Adam, as the first man, as the one created by our Creator God, created Adam without sin. He created Adam in the likeness and the image of God, created to represent God's rule and God's reign in the world and to extend God's rule to the farthest reaches of the earth so that God's glory would cover the globe as the waters cover the sea. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and to multiply. They were to make more people like them who bore the likeness and image of God. Adam and Eve, however, as our first parents, failed. They thought they knew better than God. They thought they could provide for themselves better than God. They thought that their word carried more weight and more authority than God's word. They thought they could do a better job than God, and so they ate the forbidden fruit with the hopes of being God. In pride, they elevated themselves, and in that moment of thinking of elevating themselves, they fell. They fell from their perfect state. They fell from their fellowship with God. They became sinners. They were transgressors. They would now only know sin and misery. And they had the curse of death placed on them because of their iniquity. Yet they were fruitful, and they did multiply, even through the pain of childbirth. They bore more who were like them, more who were in the image of God, but now in whom that image was marred. It was tainted, stained, tarnished because of sin. Adam and Eve were successful at producing more and more sinners. That is how we are all born now. Everyone, after Adam and Eve, is born as a sinner. And so, you and I were born in Adam. 
We are born as those who are prone to elevate and exalt ourselves in our pride. But when we come to Christ, when we put our faith in him and in his work, the work of salvation that he did on the cross, believing that he died to save us and rose again from the dead to justify us, when we are convicted of our sin, cut to the heart by our own wickedness and vileness and repent of our sin, something miraculous and supernatural happens. We are no longer considered as those who are in Adam. We are now those who are in Christ. Does not mean that we are perfect yet. But it does mean that sin no longer has dominion or control over our lives. We are now able to obey God. And so the seemingly impossible command of humble yourselves is possible. Because of the humility we see in Christ and because of the humility he gives to us. But notice whom we are to humble ourselves to. It is a humbling that happens under the mighty hand of God. How often do we meditate on God's mighty hand? How often do we glory in the Lord's strong hand? Such a description of God. What do we know about God? What is God? Well, as a catechism teaches us, what is God? God is a spirit and has no body as we do. So this is an anthropomorphism. It's this giving an attribute, a human attribute, a physical attribute to God who is spirit. God does not have hands. God does not have fingers. God does not have toes. God does not have eyes. And yet we use some of these to talk about God to help our feeble and small, at least my small, mind, try to understand who God is. And so God's mighty hand is showing us how, God, how powerful God is. And not merely powerful, but as you read through the whole of Scripture, we come to understand that God is not just powerful, God is all-powerful. Humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God is meant to show us our own weakness. Humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God says that he is powerful and we are not. He is in control and we are not. He is sovereign and we are not. Humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God means relinquishing whatever false power, whatever pseudo-strength, whatever mistaken might we might think we have. But it also does something else. We might think that humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God would be a terrifying thought. If He is the all-powerful God, the almighty God, and we are to humble ourselves underneath that hand, that might be a very terrifying or scary place to be. Yet, it is under that hand that we find God's care and God's concern and God's love. It is here in the hollow of his hand that we know his unwavering and dependable care. And so what? So we cast all of our anxieties upon him. After all, what anxieties are there of yours? What anxieties are there of mine? What panic attacks might we face that are stronger than the Lord's mighty hand? There are none. Do we run over this verse too quickly? Humble yourselves so God will exalt you. Cast all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And we gaze at all of the foothills, but we miss the mountain in the center of them all that is the mighty hand of God. We remember His ability and the lack of our ability which flies in the face of what we hear so often in our world. What does the world tell us? What does the Word tell us to teach our children? There's nothing you cannot do. But we cannot do the most basic 
the most fundamental, the most elementary thing that we need. We cannot save ourselves. So what does 1 Peter tell us? In a certain way, he tells us the same thing that Exodus 13, 1-16 tells us. Remember the Lord's strong hand. Exodus 13, as we read it, makes reference to the strong hand of the Lord four times. You hear it. Verse 3, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Verse 9, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Verse 14, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Verse 16, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. What part does the Lord's strong hand play in your life? Is it necessary? Do you need it? Would you ever say, I think I can make it without the Lord's strong hand? I got this. As if the Lord's strong and mighty hand was an added bonus, but not necessary. May we remember the Lord's strong hand is what undergirds and is the power that holds on to us and secures our life. The Lord's strong hand is to be vital for us. So when are we to remember the Lord's strong hand? Well, Exodus 13 helps us answer that question. You can follow along there in your bulletin if that is helpful. When are we to remember the Lord's strong hand? Well, number one, remember the Lord's strong hand as you pursue Him in holiness. Remember the Lord's strong hand as you pursue Him in holiness. As the people of Israel are being brought out of Egypt, they're directed to look ahead, look to the future. And as they do, they are instructed never to forget what the Lord has done to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Maybe we even remember those words that we remembered yesterday. Never forget. With September 11th happening 20 years ago. An event shook our nation, shook our country, shook many people to the core. And so we have that slogan, never forget. For the Israelites, it was this event they were to never forget how the Lord had brought them out. This is the event that was like the birthing of a nation, like the signature of John Hancock on the Declaration of Independence. So the Lord has put His signature on His people through the Exodus. It was an event so monumental that it shaped their identity as a people. It was such a milestone that each year they would reenact what had happened all those years before when the Lord had brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was to remind them that they were once in the house of slavery. They were once in the house of bondage. They were once slaves. They were once in the smelting pot of the iron furnace refined as though through fire. But the Lord's strong hand brought them out from that place of dread and despair. Do you ever think about that, dear brother and sister? That you were brought out of the house of slavery. You were once slaves to sin and to death. But it was the Lord's strong hand that drew you out and brought you out. No longer to be a slave sin, but to be God's. God says to his people that he's going to keep his promise that he made to Abraham all those years before. He's going to bring them back into the land, the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, lots of ites. And this was going to be a prosperous land. This was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Look at how the Lord would provide for His people. Under His loving care, He provided for them with great abundance. 
such a rich and abundant land, but once a year for a week, they were to go without, weren't they? They were to go without leaven. They were to eat only unleavened bread. The first month of each year from the 14th day to the 21st day, they were supposed to only eat unleavened bread. No leavened bread was to be eaten whatsoever. They would celebrate this feast seven days, or they'd celebrate the seven days, and then the final day there would be a feast to the Lord. And the stipulations here are very specific, aren't they? These are verses 3 through 10 that we see these stipulations of this unleavened bread. It's as if they are being told, you shall not even associate with leavened bread. Don't even be seen with it. Don't be in the presence of unleavened bread. Don't even think about touching it, much less eating it. There's also a furtherance of these rules, however. In Exodus 12, 19, they were told, no leaven was to be in their houses. Don't even have any in your cupboards, in your kitchen, anywhere in your house. But now look in verse 7. What does it say? No leaven shall even be found in your territory. This is like the boundaries of the land. Get all the leaven out of your land. There's not even supposed to be a hint of it. And this was passed on from generation to generation. Tell your son on that day. What are you supposed to tell your son? Listen carefully. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Notice the personal testimony in those words. The Lord did this for me. Didn't the Lord do this for Israel? Didn't the Lord do this for many people? Yes. But there is a personal touch in the action of the Lord. He did this for me when I came out of Egypt. Look at how the Lord has cared for me. Look at how he has saved me. Look at how he has rescued me. And how we might think of Jesus in his ministry with this demon-possessed man who was inhabited by a legion of demons. Do you remember that event? This man who had made his home among the tombs, he lived like a dead man who ran around without clothes on, who cried out with loud shrieks, who bruised himself with stones, who could not be captured or bound with chains because he would break the chains with his strength. What a slave he was. Yet Jesus came to him and Jesus saw his need. He heard from those legions of demons and he cast those demons out of the man and the man was instantly changed. And the people saw that transformation as they saw him sitting with Jesus clothed and in his right mind. And as Jesus was about to leave that man, the man came to Jesus and begged him, begged him, that he might remain with him. But Jesus didn't allow it. And you know what Jesus said to him? Listen, this is Mark 5, 19 through 20. Jesus says, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Did you hear that? Jesus says to that man, go and you tell everyone that you know how much the Lord has done for you. How much the Lord has done for you. And what did the man do? The man went and told the people how much Jesus had done for him. The man got it, didn't he? The man got that Jesus was the Lord. And how much Jesus had done for him. Who is it? Who is it in your life that needs to hear how much Jesus has done for you? Who is it that needs to hear those words? 
Who is it that needs to hear perhaps those personal testimony? This is how the Lord saved me. This is how the Lord rescued me. This is how the Lord freed me from my slavery to sin. Tell your kids. Tell your grandkids. Tell your family. Tell your neighbors. Tell everyone you know how much the Lord has done for you. And how much? How much has the Lord done for you? I wonder if sometimes we struggle. If we're to equate, how much do I tell people about how much the Lord has done for me? If we fail to mention that, do we think very little of how much the Lord has done for us? Maybe we would think, the Lord hasn't done that much for me. But if we see how much the Lord has done for me to save me and rescue me, then we want to tell everybody. Because we see just how much he's done. How much has the Lord done for you? Here's a good starting place if you are a Christian. The Lord has done so much for me that he took someone who was dead in his trespasses and sins and he resurrected him from the dead. That is how much the Lord has done for me. And that is how much the Lord has done for you if you are his. And if you are not his, that is how much the Lord can do for you if you would put your faith and trust in him. And then you will want to tell everyone and anyone how much the Lord has done for you. So as Moses is giving us this stipulation of this feast of unleavened bread, why this festival? Why why are they to do this? This seems a little odd to us, doesn't it? They're not to eat any leavened bread. Leaven is that yeast-like agent that you put into the dough that spreads and permeates throughout the whole lump of dough. And that unleavened bread that they were to eat, that they were to take, that was to have no leaven in it whatsoever, that was to provide a visible picture of the people. So this unleavened bread that they were to take in their hands was supposed to be a visible picture for them to remember what the Lord had done for them. So first, it's a reminder that they had to leave Egypt quickly. They had to leave with haste. They had to get out. They were thrust out of the land of Egypt. They didn't have time to wait for their bread to rise with leaven. They had to get out. And they, were, they, they left the land with urgency. But the second picture they see as they take this unleavened bread, it's a vivid picture of their individual lives and their collective life as a nation. They were to be a holy people, a holy nation. Here, the Israelites were just beginning their journey to the promised land, a land with five pagan nations. And the Lord says, Israel, you are to be a distinct people. You are to be a people set apart, a holy people, a people devoted to the Lord, a people who are represented by that piece of unleavened bread that you are holding in your hand, bread that has not been contaminated with leaven, people who are not infiltrated and permeated with sin. He says, no, Israel, you are those who are to be holy like the Lord your God is holy. And so what's the same for us today? We are to be holy. We are to be on guard, knowing that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In fact, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, he says this, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is saying to the church, church, do not let sin remain. 
Do not let unrepentant sin abound. Cleanse out the old leaven so that you would be who you really are, an unleavened piece of bread without sin. And notice, you cleanse out this malice and this evil so that we might be that, that lump that has sincerity and truth. I love those two words, sincerity and truth. You can be really sincere, but not have truth. But we are those who are grounded and built upon the truth of God's word, and our sincerity comes from that. We are those people of sincerity and truth. And so we do not want unrepentant sin to remain in our lives. We understand the deceitfulness of sin which hardens hearts. And so we exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, pursue holiness because without holiness, it says in the Bible, no one will see the Lord. First Peter again, chapter 1 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Why do we as Christians pursue holiness? Because in pursuing holiness, we're pursuing the Lord. We are glorifying Him. We're, we do not pursue holiness merely for holiness' sake. We pursue holiness because we are pursuing the Lord. And maybe this morning, the thought of pursuing holiness seems impossible for you. There's no way that I can do this. Maybe you are thinking, I've tried to pursue holiness, but I fail every time, time and time again. I can't do it. My chasing after holiness never gets me anywhere. Do not, do not despair, my brother and sister. The holiness that we pursue is the Lord's holiness. And if you are at the end of your rope, go back to the first part of this point and remember the strong hand of the Lord. This is the powerful hand that saved you. This is the mighty hand that rescued you. This is the capable hand that has done for you what you could never do for yourself. It is the Lord's hand, strong hand, that has saved you. And so cannot the Lord's strong hand help you in, you in your pursuit of holiness? Maybe the best place to start is relying on Christ's all-sufficient grace by boasting about your own weakness and asking for His perfect power to be displayed in your life. And so we remember the Lord's strong hand as we pursue Him in holiness. Number two, remember the Lord's strong hand as you trust in His redemption. Remember the Lord's strong hand as you trust in His redemption. When you are the parents of young children, there's that special time in their life where you're trying to coax syllables out of them. You remember that time if you've ever been a parent? Even as grandparents, sometimes we want to coax out those words. Say mama. Can you say dada? There's one word, however, that we never teach our young children, but they always seem to pick up really quickly. You never hear a parent say, can you say Mine? Yet how quickly do children learn that word, mine? <laughs> like the seagulls in Finding Nebo. Mine? Mine? Everything becomes mine. Now, we don't sit there and tell them to say that word, yet they learn that word somewhere, don't they? <laughs> Where do they learn it from? Well, probably from us, from the parents. As we grow into adults, we can easily 
recoil at the thought of being anyone's possession. And even as an adolescent might look forward to the day when he or she are free, when they are out of the home, when they would say, no one owns me, I'm my own person now. As a Christian, however, we want to be owned. We want someone to say over us, they're mine. And that's what the Lord does. And we see that here, the very beginning of chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the firstborn to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. (laughs) Those who open the womb, who are the firstborn, they are mine. And that firstborn as we learn about in the following verses, 11 through 16, focuses on these firstborn, we learn that either the firstborn would be killed or would be redeemed. In the case of clean animals, the firstborn was sacrificed to the Lord. In the case of an unclean animal like a donkey, as it's used here, they could use a substitute. They could sacrifice a lamb in the place of a donkey. Or, if they were not willing to sacrifice for the donkey, they would have to break the donkey's neck, kill it. Not as a sacrifice, for it was an unclean animal. That's why I think he talks there about breaking the donkey's neck specifically. But the firstborn of man, we read, particularly focusing on the firstborn sons, it says this very explicitly, they were to be redeemed. In Numbers 3, we read that this redemption was to be paid by the price of five shekels. So even as we read about today with Jesus Christ being brought to the temple and there's this redemption of the firstborn that happens there, they're to give five shekels to the Levites, to the priests who replaced those Levite priests were a replacement for the firstborn sons. So they were to serve the Lord first in the tabernacle, later in the temple. But all of Israel would come. They would have to redeem their firstborn sons by paying this price. Why is there an emphasis on the firstborn son? Well, he represented the whole family. And so what was this to remind them of as Israel would do this generation after generation after generation? It reminded them of the Lord who had redeemed Israel. His firstborn son, Israel. How did he redeem them? Through the blood of the lamb, which was smeared on the lintel and the doorposts of their homes. Here is the Lord's strong hand that saved them when he passed over the firstborn and did not give them up to the destroyer. The Lord says, Israel, redeem your firstborn sons, just as I have redeemed you, my firstborn son. And so all the firstborn sons of Israel belonged to the Lord because he ransomed them from death. So the whole nation is God's because he ransomed them from death. But the redemption of the firstborn son points us to the final redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Ultimate redemption for God's people would come through the sacrificial and particular death of God's firstborn son. It is his life, that's Jesus' life. It is his blood, that's Jesus' blood, that now becomes the payment so that we are redeemed. Jesus himself even says this in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but what? To serve, and how does he serve? To give his life as a ransom for many. He paid the price to ransom us, to buy us back, to purchase us from sin and death so that we might be brought to God. It is Christ, the beloved firstborn son, the one who is called the firstborn of all creation, who came to earth, who lived the perfect life, 
who suffered, bled, and died as the once-for-all substitutionary sacrifice for us. And why did he do it? To save us? Yes. Gloriously, yes. But also to create a new humanity. Listen to what it says in Colossians 1.18. Or I'm sorry, Romans 8.29. It says about this, about those whom Jesus saves. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be what? The firstborn among many brothers. And then Colossians 1.18, it says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So what's happening there? It says Jesus is this firstborn, and he is the firstborn of creation who died, but now he is also this firstborn among many brothers. He is the firstborn from the dead. And so what is he doing? He is creating this new humanity, these new creations who are in him, who are bound and united to him, not only in his death, but also united and bound to him in his resurrection. And so he represents all those who are resurrected from the dead. And think about this for a moment. This new humanity that Jesus Christ is making as the firstborn from the dead, what kind of people make up this new humanity? Is it those who have some special status? Is it those who have some goodness in and of themselves? It's made up of people who are not firstborns. In fact, we might say that we are those who are late born, or maybe as those who are untimely born. And this is the pattern of God's word. This is the pattern. This is what God's word shows us over and over and over again. Think for a moment. Think of particular men that we see in the Bible. Think of Abel. Think of Isaac, think of Jacob, Joseph, David, Gideon, Solomon. All of these men have something in common. Do you know what it is? They are not the firstborn son. They are those who are late born, yet what? They received all the privileges of the firstborn. <laughs> and isn't it the same with us? God chose us not because there was anything in us, not because we were strong, not because we were beautiful, not because we were impressive. He chose us by his own sovereign grace. And it is through the sacrificial death of the true firstborn son, Jesus Christ, that we now become the firstborn as we are united to Christ and adopted into the family of God. Now, we are transferred from those who were late born to those who are now considered firstborn and we come together as a church in the assembly of the firstborn, the new creation, the new humanity established by the risen Lord. Look with me for a moment at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and here it is, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. But there it is, at the beginning of verse 23, the assembly of the firstborn, who what? Who are enrolled in heaven. That is us, church. That is who Christ makes us to be. Christ takes those who are not only undeserving, but who have done everything not to deserve it, and he saved us. And he's given us his grace. 
and he's called us into this assembly saying, these are my firstborn. These people are my people. Do you see how the Lord's strong hand has redeemed you at the cross? How he has bestowed his grace and mercy upon you who were undeserving, undeserving and alienated from God. How he has considered you so precious that he would give his own son to save you. How are we then to view ourselves? Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Why? Why are you not your own? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You have been redeemed. You have been ransomed. We trust in this faithful redemption that we have in Jesus Christ as we remember the strong hand of the Lord, the strong hand of the Lord that calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This strong hand that has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. This strong hand that took people who were dead in their sins and in their trespasses, people who were wallowing and choking on their own blood, like orphans with no parents, like a defiled woman with no husband. And the Lord came down to us and saved us and cleansed us and said, you are now God's child. And this will be the song that we sing forever. Like those in Revelation 5 who sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Father, what a privilege. What a privilege for those of us who know Jesus Christ to know that we are now these firstborn as those who have been redeemed, as those who have been united to Christ. And so, Father, may we glorify you with all that we are. May we glorify you in our bodies. Because we know that we've been bought with a price. A precious price. A price of blood spilt on the cross. The blood of Jesus. And so, Father, we look at this strong hand that you have used to save us and rescue us. We also say we want to pursue you in holiness. We want to live for you. We want to love you with all that we are. We want to love those around us with the love of Christ. But we need your help. We still need your strong hand today. There are things that will happen this week that we don't even know about yet. We'll need your strong hand. There are things that will happen this month over the course of this yet next year 
that we don't even know yet. We will need your strong hand, the strong hand that is there that has saved us, the strong hand that has always been there to save your people. It's that hand that we need with us always. And we're reminded that hand never changes and that there is nothing, nothing that can, that can overcome your hand. Father, we pray for those this morning who are here, they've been hearing these things. They realize they don't know this strong hand. They don't know the salvation that comes from the Lord. They don't know what it means to be freed from their slavery to sin. They don't know what it means to be forgiven. And so this morning, Father, I pray that you would work in their hearts. Open their hearts. Open the hearts that are closed to Jesus. Open them so that they would embrace and love Jesus. They would see him as most precious and most glorious. That the work that he has done is the work that they need in their life. That they might even see themselves like that man who was trapped. Trapped in that state of being possessed. That Jesus freed him. And so, Lord, would they be freed from their sin? Released? Would they put their faith and trust in Jesus today? Calling out to him to save them saying He is, Jesus is the Lord. That they would turn from their sin and say, no, lo no longer want that old life. I want to live for Jesus now. That you would do this work in their heart. Father, we thank You for how You are the one who holds us fast in the midst of trials and tribulations and difficulties. So we pray that you would continue to hold us fast each and every day with assurance and security that we are yours. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.